So welcome. Good evening, everyone. And um where's Nitai? Okay. Small group tonight and big topic nonetheless. We're discussing from Srimad Bhagavatam, which is the which is a, a rather lengthy sequel to the Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita ends with the idea that one should engage in bhakti and that take shelter of Krishna and the Bhagavatam is all about the life of Krishna and the and the philosophy and theology and so forth that underlies the whole these two syllables Krishna which is quite extensive so the Bhagavad Gita is about 700 verses and the Bhagavatam is about 18,000 verses over 10 cantos, quite lengthy and difficult to kind of get a handle on, especially given the complexities uh, that uh, of uh, that arise with the difference in culture and time that's passed since it's speaking and so on and so forth. So we try to um, bridge that gap and make it intelligible. Uh, by speaking about it in in, um, in terms of what it is essentially saying. It's a complex book theologically of all of the texts of the sacred text of the Hindus. It is the most theologically sophisticated and the language, the Sanskrit, is the most uh, uh, accomplished, I would say, in terms of from a literary point of view. Very beautiful and very profound at the same time. So, with that, we will continue. We're on chapter 3 today, the first verse of chapter 3. The second chapter, let's say so the first chapter, constitutes largely six questions by the sages at the sacred place Naimi Sharanya. And uh, they ask the questions of Sutta. Sutta Vasami was the speaker. And in chapter 2, he begins to answer those questions. And the questions are answered over the next few chapters, but they also constitute the basis in one sense of the whole book. So they're re-answered and reconsidered and so forth in the context of other questions and answers. The book works like that, questions and answers. And so there'll be questions and then there'll be answers. And in the context of the answers, sometimes a previous time is cited when a similar question was asked and how it was answered is then played out and then we come back to the original speaker and it goes in loops like that so it takes a little while to get uh, get a handle on it as I say um, and in fact in that for that matter there is a saying that uh, a story worth repeating 
um, in relation to the Bhagavatam, the story of the fellow who sent his son to Banaras to get an education. Banaras is a place of learning in India, very famous place of learning in past times and today as well. So father sent his son from Vrindavan, the place of Krishna's eternal Leela and so forth, where he appeared on earth and in all of his village of uneducated people, largely. It means also to us that, uh, that love transcends reason and the necessity for for knowing and uh, other than what is essential for for loving. Hmm? But at any rate, the father sent his son to Benares to get an education. He went and studied many books and came back. And the father said, so did you get an education? And he said, yes, I studied this book and that book and this book and that book. And, and father said, did you study the Srimad Bhagavatam? And the father and the son said, I don't think that was covered, uh, that book. I don't remember that book. And he said, oh, then you didn't get an education. You have to go back to Benares and study Srimad Bhagavatam. So he returned to Benares. He studied the Bhagavatam. And he came back, and father said, so did you study Srimad Bhagavatam? He said, yes, now I know why you sent me back. By reading this book alone, and I'm, I'm educated in a, in a, a real, sen- real sense. So father said, so you, you understood Srimad Bhagavatam? He said, yes. He said, then go back again to Benares and study Srimad Bhagavatam. So he followed his father's request, a little confused. He studied Srimad Bhagavatam the second time, and uh, he returned, and the father said, so did you study a second time? Yes, so have you understood Srimad Bhagavatam? And he said, uh, I'm glad you asked me to study the second time. It's a deep book. Now I've got a, I've got a grip on it. The father said, go back again and study Srimad Bhagavatam the third time. So again he came back. The father asked, have you studied Srimad Bhagavatam? Yes. The third time, yes. Did you understand? He said, I cannot understand Srimad Bhagavatam. Father said, now you've understood Srimad Bhagavatam. It is beyond intellectual grasp, is the idea, and it's not a static um, affair that's, that uh, is central to the discussion. Consciousness and, uh, and the individual consciousness of the Atma and its source, hmm? and all its possibilities, which, all, which takes us to the realm of love, where impossible it's not in the in the dictionary so this is kind of the idea so here we have in the context even of the Bhagavatam we have find different speakings of it Krishna spoke it to Brahma in four verses and then Sukadeva spoke it to the king in so many verses and Sutta Goswami speaking it to the sages here and those two speakings are contained within this this speaking and told about and so forth so it's very, um, very complex, and the subject is consciousness and its full, um, fullest uh, implications. Not merely is it a dissertation on the, the difference between consciousness and matter, hmm? which is a big subject, but it goes on from there. That's where it excels, actually. So in the second chapter, the, some of the questions were answered, and the, 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 the main focus of that second chapter was a discussion on the the way, if you will, the path, hmm? and um, bhakti was the path. So this is called abhideya, the the means, 
tattva, the, the, the metaphysical truth about the way. And in discussing the way of the Bhagavat, the path of love, of bhakti, other paths were touched on and the differences were contrasted and so on and so forth in a kind of a um, cryptic fashion and we were able to bring that out to a large extent in our discussions. The other thing that was emphasized besides the way or the path was the ideal, the, the fruit, the result, if you will, of following the path, which in a sense is to continue to follow the path, but um, the path of bhakti is in another sense threefold in that it it um, it constitutes a conceptual orientation that fosters the type of movement that the path is all about, the movement itself, and what 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 the, what the ultimate experience of that movement of bhakti is. It's bhakti, bhakti, and bhakti in a sense. Another way to talk about it is there's bhakti in practice, there's bhakti in ecstasy, and bhakti in in love of God. Hmm? So kind of like uh, it, it's a it's a it's a it's a mango budding. It's a green mango. It's a ripe mango. It's a mango. It's a mango. It's a mango. <laughs> but uh, but there's a difference nonetheless. So. The, the fruit, if you will, the ripened fruit on the path was also discussed. Sanskrit, that's called the prayojan tattva. And also, besides these two things, was the perfect object of devotion. So Krishna was himself was described. And here in the third chapter now, one of the other questions of the sages they asked about Krishna, they asked about the avatars of Krishna. So that question is going to be answered. Something in brief about the different incarnations or avatars of Krishna in the world. And so the text begins, Sutu Vacha, Jagrihe Purusham Rupam Bhagavan Mahad Adibhi Sambhutam sodasam kalam ado loka sishikshaya. So, Sutta Vacha Sutta, speaker, he said this. Jagrihe purusham rupam bhagavan mahadadibhi. Subject here is Bhagavan, the word Bhagavan. Hmm. Bhagavan did this. Bhagavan is a reference to a particular feature of the absolute as understood in 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 the uh, in the Gita and in the Bhagavat our text of this evening Bhagavan being one feature Paramatma being a second and Brahman being a third in fact in the previous chapter this was brought out with a very famous verse from the text Vedanti tat tatvabidas tatvam yad jnanam advayam brahmeti paramatmeti bhagavaniti shabdite said that learned people vedanti tat tatvabidas not ordinary people but very learned people who know tattva know the real nature of things and nature of being they have concluded that the the the, the 
ultimate reality is Advaigyan. Advaigyan means Advaigyan means uh, means knowledge, cognizance. It means and in, in, in Advai means non-dual. So reality is non-dual consciousness. Then it goes on to say, known variously as Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. So it becomes complex because all of a sudden there becomes a division in the, uh, apparently in that which is non-dual. But these differences are further explained to be differences of perception of the one singular, if you will, absolute, arrived at by different approaches to the absolute. One approach will, will give us the experience of, of, of Brahman, of being, one of Paramatma, of knowing, one of Bhagwan, of, of loving. Hmm? And, um, and so a kind of a very, if you will, a dynamic non-duality is being posited here in the Bhagavatam. A, a, a dynamic non-duality. What, what I mean by that? Um, I've given an example before. If you and I love one another, then you and I become we. So that's kind of what, what I mean by dynamic unity. We includes you and I, but we're of the same mind. Hmm? We're we're of the same will. We're of this. We're we're. In, and so there's a possibility of exchange between us that, um, that, uh, which indicates an individuality, but it doesn't compromise unity. Hmm? Kind of diversity and unity combined. And after all, in life in general, we seek diversity. Right? Portland is a good place for that. Hmm? But we seek unity also. Hmm? Uh, as much as we seek diversity, we pine for both of these. So uh, there's a diversity in material life that does away with unity. Hmm? You think it's hot, I think it's cold. A diversity created by sense perception and a, re- and a world of the mind, which you have a world in your mind and I have a world in mine. So we're we may meet at some point, we may be at odds with one another at another point. Hmm? So, to overcome that diversity and go to the underlying ground of being for unity is is a good idea, but then in the context of that unity, can there be a diversity that doesn't compromise unity? And Bhagavata speaks about this. Therefore, it speaks about experience, um, which is kind of what we are, in a sense. We are consciousness, Consciousness is all about experiencing. Hmm? It's not that the tongue tastes, but beards tasting and the vehicle of the tongue is giving us some idea of what life tastes like. The eyes are giving us some idea of what life looks like, what life sounds like, feels like. Hmm? We are the feeler, we are the seer, we are the hearer, and so forth. Uh, so... Hmm. That sounds good, but to be an experiencer or to experience, experience, think about it, experience means some kind of difference because there's the experience and there's the experiencer. 
and that which is experienced. You could say I experience myself, I suppose, but there's a there's a kind of a there's a diversity there. There's a duality in that. Hmm. Uh, so if in the name of doing away with the false diversity of material life created by minds and senses, we posit an ultimate reality that is devoid of experience. It's one, it's non-dual. There's no difference between the knower, that which is to be known, and knowing. We're really positing something that's very similar to what Materialists posit. Materialists are positing the idea that there is no, that experiencing is kind of an illusion, ultimately. Hmm? There's nobody really experiencing. So this is kind of a spiritual way, if you will, of saying a similar thing. There's no experience. You're doing away with the, the experiencer. Hmm? You can say spiritual life is about being experience. But what does that mean? Hmm? In other words, <laughs> if there's no experience and nothing to be experienced, it's a kind of a um, questionable I- idea. So the Bhagavad doesn't like that idea very much here. Hmm? It likes the idea of experiencing, which posits a kind of a, diver- a diversity, if you will, that doesn't compromise unity. We have a certain diversity that compromises unity. We might want to get away from that, just become one. But then, variety is the spice of life too. <laughs> so, is there any? So, the possibilities the Bhagavad wants to say within consciousness are are many. And so, what would otherwise appear impossible, if you will, to have something that's one and different at the same time becomes possible in the realm of consciousness. Hmm? Even for that matter, in our own material experience, we have some experience of unity and diversity at the same time. Kind of. We kind of look at it, there's unity and then there's diversity. The Bhagavad speaks of consciousness being unified and diversified simultaneously. Hmm? And how that is beyond kind of conceptualization, but nonetheless, there's reason for us to um, conjecture or concur with the statements of the sacred text here, the Bhagavad, that that's a fact. Hmm? From our own, as I say, pining for both unity and diversity, I mean, are what is. Does our material situation have anything to do with what we're actually like? Well, yeah. I mean, if, if it's consciousness expressing itself through the the, the, the limited form of matter, it's still consciousness that it's expressing itself. It's coming out maybe a little distorted, but if we look at the distortion of something, we may know something about the reality. So, Bhagavan, Paramatman, Bhagavan, and, 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 and Brahman. Um, three kind of moments in the life of the Absolute. We call it being, knowing, and loving. Sat, Chit, Ananda. 
And you might think, well, how can you separate out these three moments? Hmm? But the Bhagavatam and later texts like Chaitanya Charitamrita explain that well, there are very logically there are paths that that focus on these different aspects of the absolute: the path of Gyan, the path of Yoga, the path of Bhakti, for example, hmm? on being, on knowing, on loving. So they're not entirely separated. Hmm? But while there is being, knowing, and loving in Brahman, the being is the prominent thing. While there is being, knowing, and loving in Paramatma, the knowing is prominent, and being. And in Bhagwan, the loving is prominent. And, and a loving being and knowing is the most complete being and knowing also. So it emphasizes the idea that Bhagwan is the most full manifestation of divinity and the path that corresponds with realizing, experiencing and coming into a loving union with that aspect of the Absolute where being and knowing are fully present as well in the fullest sense, that path is Bhakti. So here it said, the subject of this verse is Bhagwan. Chagrihe Purusham Rupam Bhagavan. So, Bhagavan accepted the rupam, the form of the purusha. Now, purusha here is a word that uh, refers to the paramatma, that over-soul, if you will. The, the, um, the uh, all-knowing the the source of the of the manifestation of the world hmm. um, the paramatma means the ishwar the controller this is a, the goal of astanga yoga to meet the controller of the world and that's yoga is very much about controlling you know controlling your mind your senses your organs and your digestive system, ultimately, and all kind of things. So, but if we carefully study the Yoga Sutras, we'll find that the perfected yogi in samadhi is not the Ishwar. Hmm? There's a difference. So there's a there's a kind of a duality within the Yoga Sutra that's posited. Hmm? Um, it's a positive. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a it, it, it posits a difference, a slight difference between the individual consciousness and its source, like a spark and a fire. Hmm? And some kind of very kind of crude form of relationship. When we go to Bhagwan, the relationship fully develops and love flourishes in all respects. Hmm? So, at any rate, here the Purusha is introduced to this chapter. Be- begins to speak about the Purusha as this, in a cosmological sense. So here we, the cosmology of the Bhagavatam is, is um, first brought up. Cosmology, the origins of the world, in other words. Modern cosmology today is based on astronomical um, uh, evidence and particle physics based on evidence derived from astronomical observation in consideration of particle physics, a theory called the Big Bang. 
has arisen. It's been around for a while as the cause of the world, or not the cause of the world, the, the, the beginning of the universe. A problem has come up in modern cosmology, however, with regard to this idea, and that is what comes before the Big Bang? You know, we're all looking for causes, always. What comes before the Big Bang? Some people say, well, God comes before the Big Bang. So, they say that what caused the world? Big Bang? Okay, we might go with you on that, but God caused the Big Bang. And then someone said, what caused God? Right? Of course, now that one answer to that is that, well, we, we know, scientifically speaking, from this kind of evidence that I'm speaking about, astronomical evidence and, and so forth, from observation, uh, that, the, or, that, the, that the universe has origin. So we know that the universe has an origin. Okay. But that doesn't mean that the origin of the universe necessarily has to have an origin. There's no evidence to support that idea. So someone can make that argument that the asking, to, if I say that God is the source of the world and you say who's the source of God, it's a non-question because there's no reason to believe that God should have a source and then you define your idea of God and so on and so forth. But, of course, many people will think, well, gee, you know, just throw up God, you know, the source of everything. That's not a very adequate explanation. Hmm? We want something more concrete. God is a faith. God is a belief idea, and so forth. Of course, Bhagavatam doesn't say that, really. It's not really about belief. It's more about being. And it speaks, like the Gita does, about the nature of consciousness. Hmm? Someone asked me the other day, well, what is the, how can you measure or experience the soul? And I said, well... And it's red. I don't mean it's colored red, but I mean the experience red or blue or happy or sad. Experiencing. This is this prerogative of, 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 of consciousness. Consciousness is the basis of our experience. Hmm? Like you may say, well, red is a fraction of light and this photons like arranged like this and so on. Okay, but what's then the experience of red? In other words, if you had never seen red and you were colorblind and I showed you, this is red, photons like this, arranged like this, light refracting in this way, you would never have the experience that a person who has, is not colorblind has when they say, red. So what is that? This is a huge question, of course, in, in uh, philosophy of mind and neuroscience and so forth. And um, so, so what is consciousness and what is the I-ness, I-ness that comes, the sense that there's somebody in here and that it's, that I, things start with me. In other words, what I do starts with me. I think I want to do something and then my body moves accordingly. That the consciousness is causal. So science is trying to look at it the other way. It thinks if consciousness is causal, then it's outside of the physical realm. And that's problematic. How could it interact with the physical realm? If it's not physical, how could it interact? We can't see it interacting. How could it interact? We can't trace it, it out. It, we can't measure it, so why should it be there? 
course, the Gita says, well, it's immeasurable. Well, what does that mean? Hmm? It means that there's, the, <laughs> that there's something more, if you want to talk about measurement, than your mind, than your intellect, than your ability to measure. Indeed, the word measure in Sanskrit is maya. Hmm? It's another meaning from the lexicon, Sanskrit lexicon, for the word maya, to measure. To try to bring everything within the fist of my intellect and hold it there. I've got it. I've understood it all. Something like that. Hmm? Not possible. We even, the Bhagavatam even, speaks of enlightenment as being an un- eternally unfinished affair, for that matter. Hmm? Delusion is gone, but the nature of enlightenment is that it's ongoing hmm? experiencing. Prem, love of God, is said to be um, unlimited and always expanding. So these things don't fit between the ears. And the Bhagavatam wants in this way to give a good bashing to the intellect which is one of our instruments for knowing, but is a limited instrument nonetheless. It itself, the Bhagavad teaches, is animated by consciousness, which is of a different nature. It's categorically different than the intellect and the mind and the senses and the sense objects. And it's causal. It's, it's, it, matter is coming out of it. So we're not talking here, when we talk about consciousness, about anything we don't have experience of. Indeed, experience is consciousness. So, it's not a question of believing in the soul. We say, Atma is consciousness. Oh, okay. It's a way of defining consciousness. Yes. Hmm? And materialists may try to define consciousness otherwise. Hmm? That it's material, that, that, it, that it arises out of matter. That this complex thing called I, by us, hmm? I was thinking of writing a book once, the biography of the self, hmm. different ideas about the, the self and so forth, and where they've come from, and where they went, and where we are now, and where it should go, and and so forth. Hmm. The life of the self. So, the idea that the self, this such a complex thing, consciousness, comes out of less complex things like matter. It doesn't really compute very well. It's very problematic. But again, science largely is trying, some people in the community are going in the other direction, but largely trying to demonstrate that consciousness must be matter. Hmm? They have their reasons for it. They're largely due to the the results that science have given us, the, the knowledge that we've come to, the extent that we've done away with superstitions and so forth, and and bettered ourselves, and uh, and so on. There's some truth to that, and there may be some problems with the sense in which we think we have bettered ourselves. We may have caused more problems in the long run. Um, that um, is uh, likely, hmm? if not um, apparent, but... Um, it's not to say it's a bad thing. I mean, we, we're all scientists. We all make experiments. We all, you know, we try something. We touch our hand to the fire. It gets burnt. We think, okay, I'm not going to do that again. I mean, that's just science. It's no big deal. Hmm? You can do it more in a more sophisticated way. Hmm? 
Whether all-knowing will come from that, that's another thing. Some knowing will come. Hmm. Whether knowing yourself will come from that, that's the question. Hmm. And the Bhagavad says, no, it won't come from that. Hmm. That's another subject. That's a different thing altogether, a different category. Hmm. So, while speaking about consciousness, the Bhagavatam posits that we are all like sparks of this consciousness, a spark of sat, spark of chit, a spark of ananda. And then it kind of extrapolates from there and says, sparks have a fire that they come from. Hmm? So there's a source of consciousness. That's not too much of a leap. Hmm? And here the text wants to say, from a cosmological point of view, that the source of the world hmm, is this fire of consciousness. And the, the reason, if you will, for the world is the sparks. In other words, the fire manifests the sparks kind of out of its as being itself. Hmm? And there's there's while there's this subjective part of life, there's an objective part. The subjective part is consciousness, the objective part is matter, kind of like the unconscious. Hmm? This is a psychological term. Hmm? And so when the sparks of consciousness come in touch with the unconscious aspect of the absolute matter, hmm? the world is set into motion. Hmm? But the sparks are small, and in the face of matter, they get overwhelmed by matter. They enter matter, they turn matter on. Matter is in a form what we call pradhan, the gunas, sattva, rajas, tamas, intelligibility, um, movement, inertia, hmm? something like that, mind stuff, uh, movement, inertia, to use modern terms. Hmm? They're all in a, in a state of equilibrium, and consciousness sparks touch it and starts to animate. When consciousness touches that, then the animation that it causes of matter becomes a wonder for the spark. Hmm? And, there, and that sparks the whole of material existence, which just becomes problematic. Hmm? And the, the spark kind of loses itself in what it, what it did. It's just like a person may lose themselves in the television which they turned on, which would have no life if it weren't for the viewer. And they get lost there. They become a couch potato, frozen to the screen. Hmm? So similarly, the sparks end up in this kind of condition. So this is what's being talked about here. It's interesting to note, with regard to modern cosmology, hmm, that the idea of the Big Bang has become problematic for some people with regard, as I said, to thinking about what comes before the Big Bang. Hmm? They don't want to say God, because what's that? Hmm? I have an explanation of that. We want a scientific explanation based on astronomical evidence and uh, knowledge about particle physics and so forth. And they're not able to come up with a, an answer. So, in cosmology today, modern cosmology, there are some people who are moving away from the Big Bang theory. Hmm? And inadvertently, without thinking about it, 
some of the most prominent ones are moving in the direction of exactly what Srimad Bhagavatam is saying here in this verse, speaking about the implications of which were played out later in the book. Here it says, Jagrahe Purusham Rupam Bhagavan Maharadibi. The Bhagavan manifested as the Paramatma, the oversoul, the fire source of, of consciousness hmm? in relation to matter, the, the, the unconscious. Hmm? And hmm, all that was necessary within the, super, the, the fire of consciousness for the manifestation of the world was, was present. Hmm? And out of a desire to set the thing in motion, then he did. Hmm? This is basically what, what the verse says. Adoloka Sishikshaya Sambhutam Sodasam Kalam. So, well, what's that mean? If we study the Sal further, as it's played out in the, in the text, and also these are, all these ideas here are in seed form or touched very briefly in the Gita. Hmm? So again, this is the sequel. What it says, the Bhagavad is that there are endless cycles of the world manifesting, becoming unmanifest. The universe generating itself and expanding, contracting, regenerating itself. And that there is no beginning to this. In other words, this universe expanded, then it contracted, then it expanded again. So this expanding is the Big Bang, to use a modern cosmological term. Hmm? And what's the beginning of the Big Bang? What's before the Big Bang? Another Big Bang. What's before that one? Another Big Bang. What's before that one? Another Big Bang. And time expands in both directions, backwards and forwards, without any limit. And Paul Steinhardt, who is famous for his work in string theory, which also often posits multiverse, which is also a, a, a tenant of the Bhagavad. Not only there's one universe, there are innumerable universes. Some people in science are very interested in the multiverse idea because, for one reason, because this particular universe is said to be very well fine-tuned for life. So fine-tuned that if something in the setup was changed by the slightest fraction, there'd be no life. Hmm? So then some people say, see, there's design. So it's a hard argument actually for those who don't want to acknowledge a God and a design and intelligence to deal with. So this is one of the ways to deal with it. Well, if there are many universes, then it's not so rare. Hmm? You expand the number of universes. Only if there's, so if, there's a, if it happens in one universe out of so many, so so. But of course, in the Bhagavad, we have a theistic multiverse idea. <laughs> so you don't do away with the Godhead and, and the design. Uh, there. So anyway, Mr. Steinhardt uh, has recently said, uh, reasoned, conjectured, written with regard to the Big Bang theory and its origins. He has posited a theory that has uh, is very much uh, concurs with astronomical observable evidence that supports the Big Bang idea. His theory concurs with key points 
of observation that are the basis of the Big Bang Theory, but seen through his lens, do away with the Big Bang Theory in a sense by way of positing innumerable, innumerable Big Bangs. And, and this is exactly what these rishis who, from, from whom this Bhagavatam is manifest are speaking about in a poetic way. They're saying that the universes are coming and going expanding and contracting. In fact, Steiner has gone so far as to say, based on his, based on observable evidence, that the previous universe, or when this universe contracts and expands again, the past of this universe impacts the present of the new universe, which is explained theologically in the Bhagavad by the idea of the of karma, that there's the, a the karmic imprint hmm, in the universe, and it contracts into the into the parusha, poetically speaking, he inhales, the worlds come back in, and exhales, and they go back out, and and there's a there's a there's a continuity, there's a there's a difference in the world, but there's some continuity. Hmm? So he's saying there's continuity between the different expansions and contractions, and this is what the Bhagavatam is also saying, in a poetic way, and and arguably, hmm, in a more profound way, because it may be more complete, more comprehensive of a means to talk about the world through poetry and and through the subjective experience of the rishis that speak about, again, here, this same cosmological idea, hmm? but they're doing it from a vantage point of inner realization as to the nature of consciousness and its source that's not within the uh, microscope or the test tube of modern science. Consciousness eludes them. Hmm? There are a dozen or more theories about it that all fall short all trying to make it material. Hmm? And it, it, it's just very elusive. And we say it's elusive because it's not material. Therefore, you won't, won't know about it. You can't find it in that way. There are some theistic arguments, or I should say, arguments for consciousness being non-material in science also, that look at the mind-brain argument. Is, is mind brain, or is it a different thing? And by mind, they mean consciousness. We say consciousness is more than mind, but at any rate, there are some arguments from a point of view of quantum um, physics that that posit some, that bridge the explanatory gap and posit that consciousness is non-material. They're not popular, but they're, they're as as um, well-reasoned and as well-based on empirical evidence as any other theory that tries to do away with consciousness or make it matter. Hmm? Um, so they, they really, obje- if you're objective, you have to give them as much credibility. I read a review on one such book and said, well, you know, yeah, he said these things, but he didn't talk about the fact that there are other ways of looking at consciousness. And I, th- I thought, well, why should he? The books that try to make consciousness matter say, but there are other theories, and they say that you know maybe it's not material. No, the person's making his point or her point, and uh, and with some you know some feeling for it, 
if you will. So, <laughs> so uh, here at the Rishis, it's I think it's very compelling for us to see that here's a theory that has correspondence in modern cosmology as to the cosmologies about the origins of the universe. And without going into the math of it and, and not based on as much on astronomical observable evidence and so forth, but based on pursuing the idea that consciousness is not material through a systematic method, also articulated in the text through bhakti, and then from that perspective, speaking about it. And they're really speaking about the more important thing here hmm, than just the workings of the world. There's some explanation of the elements evolving and and so forth um, in the text that's implied here when it says sotasakalam, 16 parts. The worst, these words here are, speak about kind of the idea that there are five senses for perceiving, hearing sense, seeing sense, the touching sense, the tasting sense, the smelling sense, and so forth. And there are five working senses, legs for movement, arms, and so on and so forth, the tongue for speech. So there are five working senses and five perceiving senses. And and then there's the mind, kind of the sixth sense or the eleventh sense. So five and five is ten. And eleven, and then the four basic elements: earth, water, fire, air. Or the five of them, I should say. So eleven and five is sixteen. Right. So sodasa column. Sodasa column means sixteen parts. So it's it says inside the purusha, this objective subconscious, uh, unconscious, exists called matter. It has basically, in just a basic sense, 16 parts. Hmm. Still, it's talking about it from a conscious point of view. Consciousness wanted to see, so eyes became manifest, and objects of sight became manifest. It's a consciousness-driven evolution that the Bhagavatam speaks about. long time ago, Spinoza said, famous Italian, uh, sometimes thought of as a mystic and philosopher, hmm, who was also a what was he, an optrician or something like that? He made, he made lenses for seeing. So anyway, he had a kind of a pantheistic idea, bordering on a panentheistic idea of, of of reality. Anyway, he said long before Darwin, the Hindus were evolutionaries or evolutionists. So it's a consciousness-driven evolution. In other words, consciousness drives the unfolding of matter, its development and so forth. It doesn't entirely correspond with uh, you know, modern theory of evolution, but the principle... And anyway, the theory of evolution really is a theory. Something's going on. There's some kind of development going on, and you can't prove the theory of evolution. It's absolutely absolutely improvable. But it's a theory because it works. It, it's from so many angles of vision. It, um, in different um, disciplines, there's evidence for that, and if you work with it, think you can make things happen, and so, so it's given a lot of credibility. And some kind of development is is going on, but we say it's a consciousness-driven evolution. The world expands and plays itself out, and then contracts, and so on and so forth. Obviously, it's not going into the detail here, but that's not the subject of the book. 
The subject of the book is more about consciousness that's in the predicament that it's in presently, in the, having turned on the world and now being kind of awed by it and, and caught up in it and so forth. How to come out of it, how to know yourself and so on. This is the, this is the subject. And also, the verse speaks beautifully about the Purusha. It says, Soda Sakalam also, also be said to mean, Soda Sakalam means like 16, and it is often can be used as an inference to the moon, a reference to the moon. 16 phases, you know, there's the 15 days, what is it, one way, waxing and waning, and the full. So, he's the full moon, it describes him poetically. Bhagavan became the Purusha. It's not something that happened in time, but you've got to use language to talk about it. It says, Bhagavan Jagrihe Purusha, uh, Purusham accepted this Purusha aspect. Sambhutam means that it was always existing. It's always existing. It's not a moment in time, but we have to use language to talk about it. So, he accepted the Purusha and and who is like the full full moon, like very full and out of full it means also that out of his fullness the world manifests. In other words, the Purusha is full and so the one out of fullness to celebrate his fullness becomes many. The sparks. And the world comes into play. But the problem is that the world becomes a problem for the sparks because they're small and they get overwhelmed by the unconscious. And so, as this chapter continues, there are five verses here that speak about the Purusha. We, we find there's the original Purush, the world, the universes come from. Then there's a form of the Purusha, the Paramatma, that enters into each world. Hmm? And the one that enters into each atom. It talks about the all-knowing. Hmm? Like I said, Paramatma is about knowing about controlling. So it's described as that the, the, the Godhead is in every atom of existence, behind every universe, and behind all the universes. So from the original, the, the oversoul, to all the universes. Then the oversoul manifests in a particular form within each universe, and then within each atom. Hmm? Again, it's speaking about this all-knowing, the controlling idea, hmm? in a positive sense. So, out of fullness, it's another way of thinking, he becomes the many, it becomes a problem. And so then, from that manifestation of the Paramatma for each universe, the oversoul of each universe, comes so many avatars. This chapter is about the avatars. Hmm? They come to the world to, to remedy the problem that the spark is having so that the, each soul can meet its maker something like that. In these emotional moments of the absolute, these avatars, they, they manifest, in, they are eternally playing themselves out in the paravyom, in the world, kind of beyond, in the, in the realm of consciousness. They are moments in the life of the absolute, just like if you had a feeling like friendliness, and it could be personified. See? Bhagavan is satya sankalpa, so whatever Bhagavan wants happens. It is. It's a little different than us. Our inner desire requires many things for it to be fulfilled. 
So Bhagavan is not like that. So friendliness in Ram is manifest, and so Balaram, and so on and so forth. So many different avatars. And then these avatars, so they're all playing themselves out in relation to different devotees who are all sparks of consciousness in the liberated realm of consciousness. There's no influence of matter. And this is the unity and diversity there. And then when the Purusha, who has a relation to the unconscious aspect of being, which is matter, manifests the sparks, again, that becomes problematic for the sparks just by the nature of the thing. So the avatars come through the Purusha to save the day, so to speak, and and, uh, and uh, teach and exemplify and, and so on and so forth, that the sparks may meet their maker. So this is the subject here, and over five verses, these, the unfolding of the Purushas are described, the two of them. The, the, the one who goes into each atom was, was mentioned in the previous chapter, and now the other two, the source of the universes and the source kind of the conscious source behind each universe hmm. um, or within each universe kind of oversoul if you will and um, all of this in the context really of saying something very theologically significant to the whole book which is Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam that Krishna the, con- the idea of Krishna is the source of all of these avatars, all of these purushas. Hmm? He's the full-fledged uh, experience of ultimate reality of Bhagwan, and that's highlighted in this chapter. It comes that statement, Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam, comes about 23 verses later. But understanding that verse in the way I'm speaking about it is. Um, we can draw that understanding to a large extent from these verses here. Here, for example, Bhagavan Mahadadi, the Purusha, Jagrahi Purusham, Bhagavan Mahadadi, the Purusha comes from Bhagavan. Paramatma is an aspect of Bhagavan. Krishna's too, Bhagavan. Krishna's Bhagavan, Swayam, the, the original Bhagavan. The, uh, anyway, the argument is developed over the over the chapter especially, what will happen is he'll mention different avatars, just kind of a list of them, and then he'll come to Krishna, who appears to be an avatar, and the text will explain how he's the avatari, the source of all avatars. And there's an important reason for that, to find out the source, and so we'll discuss that in the further uh, meeting. Any, any questions? What's the time? Right on time. Any question? Yes. Thinking about gyan and yoga correspond, like the practice corresponding to the goal. It seems like the gyan more speaking of the goal as being, it's more focused on knowing and practice. And it seems like the yoga more focused on knowing. Gyan mark is focused on knowing that you be. That's what it's focused on, knowing that you be, whereas, whereas, while it appears that you don't be, or that you might not be, your sense of of what you be is like I'm, you know, 
from California, I'm a Californian, you know, something like that. Uh, that is not going to endure. So it might look like we don't be at a certain point. Hmm? So it's about knowing that you that you be in another sense, that you are consciousness, not matter, and separating between the two and being. So it's about knowing that you be in a, in, a, in an enduring sense. And in yoga, is about it's about knowing. And in fact, the sutras say that one of the aspects of yoga samadhi is a is a, is omniscience, a certain kind of knowing. It's not omniscience in a common sense of knowing every detail, but it's an identification with the all-knowing aspect of the absolute, who is then poetically or mystically, we should say, described as being the source of the universe, over, over, kind of being oversoul of the whole universe, being in every atom. So it's like from the, you know, how much smaller you could could you be than the smallest material particle? He's there, knows everything inside the atom, and then the source of all the universes. That's pretty big. <laughs> yeah, so it's the way of saying that he knows everything. Um, so it's an identification with the all-knowing aspect of the absolute. You understand? Anything else? And again, of course, in Bhagwan there's loving, and that's where being and knowing have their greatest meaning also. They're 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 played down. Because in love you might you can be something like you don't you don't care to know. <laughs> And you don't know that you be, or something like that. You're carried away with it, but it actually is the most significant knowing and the most significant being, most full sense of knowing and being. You follow? Okay. All right. We'll stop there. Grandparas, Srimad Bhagavatam, Vijay.